I want to talk about wisdom tonight. It's the last Dhamma talk I'm planning to give, but we're going to have Q&A tomorrow night, so we'll be able to talk about whatever you have on your mind and that you want to share. You don't have to share everything that's on your mind. If we go back to the sutta, one of the suttas we looked at very early on called Making a Wish, we can follow what the Buddha said was a natural progression to wisdom, to full awakening. And just the the ribs of the sutta, it's about all it is, really. But it's only natural... When you start with ethical conduct, that then a person has no regrets. And then when we have no regrets, it's only natural that joy springs up. And this joy, the Pali word is pamoja, which is um, just kind of a happiness and a relief. You can imagine, you know, you have a clear conscience and there's a a joyful feeling there from that. Pamoja comes up in other places too. In in this in some of these sequences, sometimes Pamoja is what is described as what you feel when you realize that there's a way out of suffering, even before you really know much about the path or about the Dhamma. But you can see really is a way out. And then joy arises, so it's really some faith that comes up then. That's the same kind of, of joy, joyful feeling, pamoja. But when that pamoja is there, that kind of joy, then it's natural for piti to arise, for rapture. <coughs> In this translation, they call it rapture. Spiritual joy, delight, And when there's joy, that kind of joy, rapture, um, PT, it's only natural that the body becomes tranquil. And when the body is tranquil, it's only natural to experience sukha, so happiness. Here it's translated as bliss. And when there is bliss, it's only natural to be for the mind to become immersed in samadhi. So we know that some of you have been experiencing some parts of this or this whole sequence during this last couple weeks. And right there, samadhi is what is the foundation for wisdom to arise. So the first part that happens is to truly know and see. It's not the full knowing, um, realizing Nibbana, but it's, it's a recognition of truth. Uh, yata brutang janami janami pasami is the way it's said here. <coughs> There's an understanding. You're kind of starting to get a glimpse of the Dhamma. And that glimpse, probably of impermanence, or dukkha, or not-self, some actual real taste of the way things are, then the natural thing is to be (coughs) disillusioned by the world. You can't buy into the, oh, if you just get this car, or this place to live, or have this vacation, or this partner, or whatever, then you're going to be happy. It's like at that point, you know that that's not 
um, what leads to the kind of happiness that lasts. And it's like there's nothing wrong with any of those things. Um, it's great to have a good partner. It's great to have a good place to live. It's great to have a reliable vehicle. There's, it's nice to take a nice vacation. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But you know, you know, you're not constantly looking for the next experience or the next thing that's going to give you a, <clears throat> a pleasant feeling. And of course, everybody in this room knows this. But then what do we do with that disillusioned, you know, you know, many people experience that shift of how they spend their time and who they spend it with, and it's a process. But it's natural that that happens. That there's this disillusionment, or sometimes it's translated as disenchantment, um, that can be considered too too weak for this experience of nibbana. But then, when we have this disillusionment then it's only natural to become dispassionate. It's hard to get excited about <laughs> these things anymore. <clears throat> you get more, much more excited about, um, you know, beautiful mental states. And, um, <coughs> sorry, mental states of loving kindness and being filled with the Brahma Viharas and having deeper insights, spending time on retreat. I mean, pick the average person off the street, how would they have felt about being held hostage here for two weeks? (laughs) Might have been rough. So, then, when there's that dispassion there, It's only natural that the knowledge and vision of freedom comes. And the knowledge and vision of freedom that that seeing, that release, that deliverance, that emancipation is awakening. Now in this particular sequence, in this uh, making a wish, like you don't have to wish every time, every one of those is that you don't have to make a wish to have the next step. It just naturally comes. Putting in the right causes and conditions. And and um, the, the final line here is that good qualities flow on and fill up from one to another for going from the near shore to the far shore. So, <clears throat> whenever we see this kind of sequence, it might have a few different components or a few little bit different poly terms. But it, it almost seems like it's like halfway is to samadhi, and then the other half is the, the wisdom side. And, you know, we know that um, because the Buddha tells us, there are things that we should pay attention to besides just good ethical conduct. You know, it it's like this with the suttas. You need to read more than just a few because you can get like one kind of one perspective on something and then you need to see more of them to see a more well-rounded understanding. So if you only had this sutta, you'd feel like, hey, <clears throat> maybe, maybe I, I'm talking about me, 
maybe I would feel like a hopeless mess if, you know, it's not just flowing along that way. Um, but actually there's much, there's more to do to um, bring about that kind of deep understanding of the Dhamma. So I think you all picked up the packet, the suttas out there. There are three that I thought we'd take a look at. <clears throat> and the first one is just this little short sutta in the book of fours of the um, numerical discourses called The Growth of Wisdom. So this is the theme tonight. How do you grow this wisdom? How do we open the gates for that to happen. And this little short sutta talks about these four things and that, um, that cause the growth of wisdom. And there are suttas, it says there in the first little parenthetical statement, that these same four things lead to the realization of the fruit of streaming tree. It's another little sutta. <clears throat> and then the same four lead to the realization of what's for the fruit. I should say not the realization, it's the realization of the fruit of stream entry, the fruit of once returning, the fruit of non returning, and the fruit of our arahantship. So, you know, taking taking us all the way through the very, the different four different levels of awakening based on these four things. So it says, these four things lead to the growth of wisdom. What for? Association with good persons, hearing the good Dhamma, careful attention, and practice in accordance with the Dhamma. So I want to put a little bit of, of definition around these. So association with good persons really implies association with people who are more enlightened than we are. Someone who's further along on the path. They've made some reasonable gains on the path. Their life has really changed. They're able to really give you help, support, guidance. Um, they'll be able to see whether what you're, the direction you're going is good or not. So it's, it's not just your, you know, just anyone uh, who's a practitioner. It's best to look to someone who's a little further down the road or a lot further down the road. <clears throat> and then hearing the good Dhamma, hearing the um, not watered down, not um, manipulated too much away from the original teachings of the Buddha, I would say. And then careful attention here is a translation for Yoni So Manasikaro, which is to have this wise attention. And that's actually the words we use at the beginning of that meal, um, reflection, wisely reflecting, I use alms food. That's with that. It's, you're observing things and you're really seeing what's skillful or not skillful. You're paying close and careful attention. Looking at it with depth, I would say. And then practicing in accordance with the Dhamma. So it makes sense, right? It feels pretty complete. But we're going to go on to the next sutta that actually puts more um, shape on that to give us a bit more of what these things mean. <clears throat> so mendicants, this is uh, in Guttara Nikaya 8, 2, and it's called wisdom. Mendicants, there are eight causes and reasons that lead to acquiring the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life. So what's really essential and to its increased growth and full development once it's been acquired. And what are these eight? And this is all um, 
about mendicants, but always, you know, really apply it to lay life, whatever lifestyle you're living, because we're all the students of the Buddha, and we all have this path available to us, and we can do a tremendously uh, wonderful job with whatever lifestyle, as long as it's a, an ethical, kind, harmless lifestyle. So it's when a practitioner lives relying on the teacher, this capital T is the Buddha, or a spiritual companion. The uh, translation is actually a fellow, a fellow monk. Um, and, you know, like if you're talking to monks, then this is another monk who's in the role of a teacher. Of course, if it's a bhikkhuni, you're looking to probably another bhikkhuni or maybe a bhikkhu you know, for that teaching. As a layperson, also could be a, a bhikkhu or a bhikkhuni or whoever, as long as they are really fulfilling that teacher role in a in a really um, responsible and effective way. And again. The, the Buddha is like the most amazing teacher. It's just that we also benefit tremendously from having a living teacher who we can talk to about what is actually going on. And um, there's a great deal of benefit in that teacher having attainments. Um, having really developed on the path, like I said earlier. However, in the suttas, we'll see uh, in the next sutta, which is going to flesh out this idea of who to look to as a teacher, it doesn't talk at all about attainments. So, at least not, um, not directly. So anyhow, we've got this teacher... And they set up a keen sense, the, the, the practitioner has a keen sense of conscience and prudence. So, Hiri Otipa, Hiri Otipa, is moving again. Is that better? Yeah, okay. Um, <clears throat> So the, the practitioner, this is a person that you really can feel some warmth and respect for. You really, really value this, this person's opinion and you trust them. And you have Hiri and Otapa, you have that, that conscience and the prudence. And it's related to the teachings that you really want to tell them when there's something that you've done that you're not happy about or that, you know, talk about what you're intending to do, perhaps if you have uh, any kind of uh, doubt about it. And so this is the kind of relationship. And this is the first cause for the development of wisdom. And then when this practitioners living relying on that teacher or spiritual companion in the teacher's role. So when they see this, like, um, living relying on them, it, it also, another way of saying it, is to take dependence on them. And this, um, this is something, it's now 20 years since I took dependence on Ajapasana. And I thought it was pretty cool that he... Um, allowed lay people to do that. And to, the ceremony is quite, yeah, as all um, Theravada ceremonies are, very short, but quite um, powerful. <clears throat> and it really had a, a wonderful effect on my practice. And it, it's like um, you're establishing this agreement, this relationship where you know, on both sides, you take it seriously. And I've, this is, I've done this twice, with Ajahn and with Venerable Bhikkhu Bodhi, and it's like in both cases, 
you know, they really take that seriously too, and they're there for you when you want to ask a question. They don't seek you out and keep tabs on you at all. <laughs> it's up to you, you know, but they are um, really responsive. And so that that's something you want. Uh, you want this teacher to be available and um, take your spiritual well-being, your well-being in general, um, seriously. So you're living in dependence. Now, in the monastic life, you live in dependence on the head of the monastery, whatever abbot or abbess. So when I go to Australia, I'm, I'm sure I'll take dependence on Ajahn Brown. So what happened with you, sister, when you went? No, there's no formality. No formalities. Okay. <laughs> Whether they do it formally or not, they're going to have to take care of me. <laughs> That's how it works. <laughs> okay. Yeah, they're very light on formality um, at, at Bodhinyana Monastery. Anyway, they're, this, you're relying on this teacher... And from time to time, the practitioner goes to the teacher and asks questions like, you know, why does it say this? You know, looking at the suttas, what does it mean? What does that mean? Um, Or maybe something about the practice, obviously, you know, kinds of questions. Those venerables clarify what's unclear, reveal what is obscure, and dispel doubt regarding the many doubtful matters. This is the second cause for the development of wisdom. And after hearing that teaching, you go and you talk to the teacher, and then you go back and you really contemplate it, you really take it in, so after that, after hearing the teaching, we resort to withdrawal of both body and mind or um, seclusion. Like you, you spend time silently, quietly, um, taking this in and really integrating it. And that's the third cause for the development of wisdom. And then when a practitioner is ethical and restrained in whatever precepts they take up. So, in this case, restrained in the monastic code with good conduct and associations so you're around good people. I mean, people who are behaving well according to them, also to their precepts seeing the danger in the slightest fault, they keep the rules they've undertaken. And you know, one of the things that I suspect is that, you know, you'll see that different traditions have different ways of holding rules. And different teachers might give somewhat different advice. Nothing, um, nothing veering away from the the moral code, I don't mean that, but other things that are maybe less kind of impactful on people, like what kind of allowables you eat after midday, or um, whether or not it's okay to watch a certain kind of movie, or whatever those kinds of things. That And, and there are probably a hundred examples or a thousand examples of different ways that people hold rules. And what I suspect is that what matters is that you're really following through and doing what you say you're doing. That's the most important thing. After the the moral stuff, the harmlessness is established, I think that's what really matters. So, you know, if you decide you're going to keep eight precepts, keep eight precepts, keep the, you know, it's always the food one that seems to get people. You know, and if you don't, then talk to the teacher, ask if it's okay to change what you're doing. It makes it so easy on the mind. Um, it's not like you. It's not like you need to. You know, 
struggle unnecessarily. There's some struggle that's helpful, but it's also really wonderful to be able to talk about these kinds of things with somebody you trust who's going to really tell you the truth, even if you don't hear, if you don't like the answer. And that's another part. It doesn't really say it in here, but it's like we see this in other places in the suttas, to be really willing to hear um, the answer or see the truth, no matter what it shakes up in your life. That is pretty essential to developing wisdom. If we've got a strong idea that it should be a certain way, and that we are a certain way, and we're not willing to let go of that, we might not be able to really see the way things are. That was the fourth cause. And then the practitioner is very learned. They, they study, they remember, um, they keep what they've learned in mind, they, they're able to remember it. <coughs> These teachings are good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. Meaningful and well-phrased describing a spiritual practice that's entirely full and pure. So that's the description of the Dhamma, the description of what the Buddha teaches. <clears throat> and that, of course, is what we want to be um, taking in to our mind and helping to establish there in our thinking, in our kind of the fabric of how we understand the way things are. They're very learned in such teachings and remembering them, reinforcing them by recitation. So, reciting, chanting. This is something, of course, that was a really big deal back then when they didn't write anything down. Um, and they, from what I understand, some, someone else may have more uh, learning around this than I do, but from what I understand, there was a hesitancy to write things down. It wasn't because there wasn't the ability to write things down, but you can't write down sacred things that are, you know, like to, to really pass on something sacred was to be in the heart, passed on through knowing it. It's very different when you write it down and it somehow loses its um, contact. Somehow, I think you get it. Um, so anyway, to recite, and it's still helpful. I mean, who knows when the internet's going to go down? You know, we need to know a few things. <laughs> um, yeah. Mentally, so they, they reinforce those things by recitation, mentally scrutinizing them. Are you really digging into them, trying to understand what you're learning? Um, really grapple with it and comprehend it theoretically first. So it's like, okay, I see what this means. Doesn't mean we have it in the heart yet, but it's it's in the in the head at least. That's the fifth cause. And they live with energy roused up for giving up unskillful qualities and embracing skillful qualities. So again, we see this so many times. This is what right effort really is. They're strong, staunchly vigorous, not slacking off when it comes to developing skillful qualities. So of course, you know, some of us might think, yeah, my, my strong days are long gone. But no, not necessarily so. Sometimes we're stronger in certain ways, and maybe working with our unskillful qualities is one of them. Um, you know, there's, since that's what we have to be strong at, 
The strength needs to come in honesty and persistence and having a kind of confidence that we can change these unskillful patterns. And we have to be vigorous in a certain way because we have to be um, patient and really persistent because some of this stuff is really old. And it's such a great thing to resolve it and leave it behind. So, <clears throat> but that's is that the sixth? That's the sixth cause for the development of wisdom. And then, when you're in the sangha, so that means in this case the monastic sangha when we're meeting together, whether it's our little group or we're with others, not to engage in rambling or pointless talk. This practitioner either talks about Dhamma or they invite someone else to talk about the Dhamma or they respect noble silence. And that's pretty wonderful when that's happening. And it, it's interesting that they say when you're in the Sangha, so maybe when you're, I don't know, when would you be doing something else? Um, you know, but there, of course, is always this um, kind and amiable talk that the Buddha has with people when they come, and there's nothing like that also has a point to it, to know how someone's doing. And, a lot of such things. So this is, is as interesting to consider that in your life, when can this be the way of holding things? So that there's a certain amount of silence in your life. Now maybe some of you live by yourself and you have plenty of silence. Or, you know, I have known people who never have any silence, even if they live by themselves. The TV is on constantly or something, and they, and I know there's one person I'm thinking of in particular, after her husband died, she just wanted to have something on in the house all the time. You can totally understand that, feeling so lonely. So you know, it is really wonderful to be able to have friends that we can talk with about the Dhamma. And, you know, seeing how to organize our life so that that's possible. Speaking of noble silence, um, here we are, one more day. Please try to hold it in silence. The precious moments, and the people around you will appreciate it too. That's the seventh cause for developing wisdom. We're going to break silence on Thursday morning. And it's kind of like that idea of, you know, doing what you say you're going to do. So uh, it's just, you know, no guilt, no anything, but just that kind of like, okay, let's together, let's do this. Now this practitioner dwells contemplating the arising and vanishing of the five aggregates subject to clinging. <coughs> so here, you know, you know, there's there's been all these other these these seven things put in place. And now here we are at the last one, and it's the direct investigation and practice of seeing the way reality is really observing the arising and the passing away, the coming and going of form. So, such is form, such is the body, such is the origin, such is the passing away. You can take any body part, any body part can start to deteriorate at any time such as feeling. This is, how it, this is how it comes into being. This is how it passes away. 
our perceptions, our thoughts, volitional activities. It looks like the ellipses knocked out perceptions, but you know they're there. Such as the sense consciousness. That's how it arises. This is how it passes away. And of course, there are other contemplations too, equally powerful, about the six sense bases and, you know, anything and everything that you can apply the three characteristics of impermanence, dukkha, and non-self to. But this kind of contemplation is the eighth cause for the development of wisdom. Their spiritual companion, so the sutta goes on, uh, like half of it's not quite here, there's a dot, dot, dot down there. But this part is, is like going through each thing, each of those eight, it says their spiritual companions esteem them. This venerable, or this, this practitioner lives relying on a teacher or a spiritual companion in a teacher's role. They set up a keen sense of conscience and prudence for them with warmth and respect. Clearly, this one, this practitioner knows and sees. So the idea is you go through all of these eight um, and you see that when you when we live this way, there's a qual this quality, each of these eight qualities leads to fondness, respect, esteem, harmony, and unity among the Sangha. So, you know, not only are we happy and content and developing wisdom in our own life, but the people around us can trust us and they can look to us and they can say, yeah, they're, um, they're really this quality. And, you know, you have that warmth, that respect, that esteem. And the harmony, of course, comes because everybody's working on the same thing. You've got that goal, and it, um, you know, like in the monastic sangha, that's what really helps us to develop harmony, because whatever else is arising, whatever kind of thing gets triggered, misunderstandings, um, different opinions, trauma reactions, whatever it might be, when you have the, the goal of liberation in mind and you share that goal, and you have these kinds of fundamental supports that you're all relying on, even if you know, you're kind of slipping off one way or another, it's like you've got something to come back to to help work through whatever's going on. And you can do that with respect for each other. So these are the eight causes and reasons that lead to acquiring the wisdom fundamental to the spiritual life and to its increased growth and full, de full development once it has been acquired. Now I also included here an excerpt from a really lovely sutta in the Middle Length Discourses called with Chanki, Majjhima Nikaya 95. And I just pulled out the portion um, where we get a sense, a much fuller sense of what the Buddha recommended in terms of finding a teacher. And um, the first line there is this exchange is happening between the Buddha and this young Brahmin. So how do you define awakening to truth? So there's there's three levels of truth that the Buddha talks about to this young man. Um, preserving truth, so speaking in a way that we're actually saying what's true and not kind of um, exaggerating something, not making assumptions about, you know, positing something that you can't really directly know fully, 
just kind of adding something on there, a little hand waving, you know, like, no, preserve the truth. That's previous to this quote here. And then the Buddha says, well, this is how you preserve the truth, but that's not how you awaken to the truth. And then the young man says, so how do you define awakening to the truth? So this is where the Buddha is giving, it's a similar kind of idea. You know, how do we develop wisdom? How do we put the causes and conditions in place for that to happen? And so here he says, take the case of a practitioner living supported by a town or village. So wherever you're living, or, or this is like the, I'm sorry, this is the, the mendicant living supported by a town or village. So that, you know, the monks at a Bayagiri living supported there near Ukiah. Um, nowadays, support can come from halfway around the world, which is, it's just such a trippy time to be alive. You know, it's like, wow. Anyway, there they are, and, you know, a householder or their child approaches and scrutinizes them for these three kinds of things. So you go to a bakery and you check out the monks. <laughs> Didn't mean <laughs> So, what do you want to know about them? You check out three kinds of things. The things that arouse greed, the things that provoke hate, and things that promote delusion. Does this venerable have any qualities that arouse greed? Such qualities that if their mind were to be overwhelmed by them, they might say that they know even though they don't know, or or that they see even though they don't see, or that they might encourage others to do what is for their lasting harm and suffering, or long-term harm and suffering. So it's like, you know, sometimes you hear about uh, some spiritual person who's got some psychic powers, and people start to calm and they get popular, and then, I don't know, sometimes I'm not sure if they ever had the psychic powers, but then somebody discovers that it's actually a trick. And maybe they did have psychic powers in the beginning, but they can't just call them up on demand, so they start to embellish something in the back room, whatever, I don't know, but you get the idea. There's temptations. When people become popular, when people become wealthy, the greed can be there that can cause them to start to not be so authentic anymore. Or maybe there's other kinds of um, desires. So you're supposed to really investigate them. What do they do they have any such tendencies around greed that they might lead people the wrong way or do something harmful to them or mislead them about what they actually know or can, or or do, and when scrutinizing them, they find, no, this venerable has no such qualities that arouse greed. Rather, that venerable has bodily and verbal behavior like that of someone without greed. And the principles that they teach are deep hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful, sublime, beyond the scope of logic, subtle, comprehensible to the astute, to the wise person. It's not easy for someone with greed to teach this. So you really get that feeling. Like um, one time when uh, a, a friend of mine was staying at a Bayagiri, and she said, you know what I love about this is you see the monks constantly. You see Ajahn was the abbot for a long time, or Ajahn and Ajahn Amaro. She said, yeah, you see them, you know, 
from the morning, chanting all day, you see going in and out of the bathroom, you're there when they're eating, you're just like you're there constantly there. It's not like a teacher that just comes and not to say that teachers are necessarily doing anything wrong, but you don't know anything about their life if they just come and teach and go. Whereas, you know, the Buddha's saying, if you're going to take someone as a teacher, it's good to know um, that you really see how they, how they are. And then he says, scrutinizing them in this way, you can see that they're purified of qualities that arouse greed. But next, search them for qualities that provoke hate. Does this venerable have any qualities that provoke hatred? Such qualities that were their mind, were their mind to be overwhelmed by them, they might say they know what they don't know, or they see what they don't see, or they might encourage others to do what is for their lasting harm and suffering. Now, this translation maybe isn't quite so clear about this, but I've seen other translations where it really is like, you know, it's not like you're asking this person to not have any greed, hatred, or delusion anymore. But it's that they wouldn't let that overwhelm their mind. They're not going to let, if something like that arises, they're not going to let that cause them to break their precepts. You know, that's the kind of thing you want to watch out for. So like I said, there's nothing in here about this person having attainment. However, the hint is pretty strong that the person can teach this deep Dhamma, so they must have some um, something in going in their practice that they can really do that. So it goes through the same language. Um, no, this venerable has no such qualities that provoke hate. The venerable has bodily and verbal behavior like that of someone without hate. And the principles that they teach are so deep and hard to see, hard to understand, peaceful, sublime, beyond the scope of logic, subtle, comprehensible to the wise, says the astute is, okay. This is like uh, the Dhamma, you know, it's, it's hard to see, uh, but we have to experience it directly, individually, and it's available to someone who's investigating, taking care of astute. So then, of course, there's one more go-round of this. Once you realize there are purified qualities of hate, then you look for the delusion. So would delusion ever take over in a way that they're gonna, the mind's gonna be overwhelmed by it and will say or do things when, or say they know things where they can see things that they don't. So it's the same thing. Um, and once you see that they're purified in qualities that promote delusion, then you can place faith in them. And when there's faith, then you can approach this teacher, pay homage to them. So, you know, this is kind of these ideas of bowing to someone. There's a lot of bowing in Thailand. There's a lot of bowing in most of the monasteries. When at first I didn't, I mean, I bowed along with everybody else, but I'm like, I don't know how I feel about this, you know, and I, when I practiced at home, I didn't bow to the shrine. But eventually you start to learn that the bowing has nothing to do with the person you're bowing to. It's not for them. It's for the person bowing. It's for the ability to acknowledge that this person or the idea of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, those qualities, that that deserves respect. And to be able to show respect for what is worthy of respect is an incredibly wonderful thing to condition the heart. And it's, it's like 
Yeah, when see monks and you know bow to them, only people bow to me. It has nothing to do with me. It has nothing to do with them. It's their willingness to stand in that space and be a focal point for that person to be able to show that, to feel that kind of humility and respect. And the Buddha even said, when he, when he was enlightened, he, he said, and this isn't from an ego place at all, obviously, but he's like, I don't know of anyone in the world that I can rightly back to. Because what I've seen now is beyond what I see others knowing. So he said, I know, I can bow to the Dhamma. Because he said, it's good, everybody should have something they bow to. And just think about that, the, the sort of lessening of the sense of self, the ego, and the way it feels to me, almost like an armor that we put on to act like we're stronger, safer, better, and then and then there's that fear inside that maybe we aren't. But if you set all of that aside and there's that humility and respect, it can be so authentic and honest. Anyway, just some thoughts on this idea of having faith and paying respects and actively listening to this person really, really attentive when they talk. There are other places in the sutras where it says when the Dhamma is being spoken, really pay attention, put your whole heart into it, really hear it. So remember the teachings, reflect on their meaning, and accept them after you think through it. You don't just accept it blindly, ever, but you think it through, does it make sense? And then when you accept it after consideration, enthusiasm springs up. And then you've got this energy to make an effort <coughs> and to really hear it says way up, way up, or scoot, in another translation is scrutinize, you really can you get the effort to really, really look deeply into the into the Dhamma and persevere. Persevering, they directly realize the ultimate truth. So it's like through that effort, realizing, having those insights arise, seeing this with penetrating wisdom. And we can never predict when that's going to happen, or if it's going to be a little bit here and a little bit there, or at some point some, you know, big piece of the glacier falls off, <laughs> um, the glacier of delusion. And you know, I mentioned once before, and someone would ask a question about, you know, like when an insight comes. It's really good to really <coughs> notice how it feels. So there's the, uh, the, the meaning of it, like the message of it, and then there's the feeling of it. And if you remember the feeling along with the message, it's easier to come back to it and, and restore it in your mind because coming back to an insight is really a valuable thing. Um, so, it, you know, like afterwards, maybe you write it down, but you also try to capture what that feeling is. Really, really, you know, come back to it, reinforce that, because once we see some part of truth, and we we really realize it, and we feel it, and, it, and it's, it's like... Um, that's such a valuable touchstone as you go forward. 
it'll lead to more um, in that same way of kind of you know just scrutinizing and really investigating what you're told by a public teacher or by the sutras in that same way you really are you can be with that realization sometimes the realization unfolds you can take it into your meditation really sit with it really totally in an intuitive way like you're you're holding it in your heart, in your mind. Your mind goes still. More will be can be revealed about this until there is a much more of a maturation of understanding of the Dhamma, deep understanding at the gut level. There's a translation that says you realize what the body. I really I like that. Um, I put it in here in parentheses. So it's, it's like in this last large paragraph, um, you know, when faith is written and arisen and paying respects and so on, and then persevering and go down there, they directly realize the ultimate truth, realize it with the body, and see it with penetrating wisdom. And that's how the awakening to truth is defined. But then the Buddha says, but that's not yet the final arrival at truth. So there's more. You, you, get, an, you get an insight that's really a big thing, a big change, but there's more. And he says the way you keep going with it is in the same way. By the cultivation, development, and making much of these same things, there's the arrival of truth. And that's where you really know and see. And so making much of, making much of your, you know, not, not in an egotistical way at all, but you're making much of the insights that have come so that you can help them, you know, or open, be open to their development, their unfolding. And you, you make much of the whole process here of going to the teacher, listening to the Dhamma, really investigating, really practicing. And, you know, remembering what the right amount is for your own self, for your own life, in terms of, you know, balancing your investigation of Dhamma along with other things or integrating investigation of Dhamma in other aspects of your life because you know like you can go to work and interact with people from a place of Dhamma. You don't have to talk about it with them. You can you can look at situations from the perspective of wisdom and you don't have to make anything out of it except in your own mind in your own heart in your own behavior and it's it's like there isn't any aspect of your life that somehow doesn't fit with the Dhamma I mean Maybe you can come up with things that don't seem like they fit with the Dhamma. I would say they're probably... Well, anyway, we'll see. We're going to have Q&A tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. So, that's really what I had in mind for tonight. I did put up a... Um, a page that lists all the suttas we've looked at. Thanks to someone's request for that. And we don't really have them all like in some nice folder in order, so I think it's pretty close based on the fact that I'm looking at the dates they were modified, <laughs> which helps. <laughs> but um, just, you know, that's down, down there in the bulletin part of the dining hall. And, um, yeah, I think that's it. Thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.